Hey everyone, it's Erica. I've prepared something special for you. I wanna invite you to my one-of-a-kind five-day challenge where I'll be sharing how you, along with thousands of others, can start investing with confidence. You're probably thinking, Erica, I've never invested into the stock market, or I don't have a ton of money lying around. But that's exactly why I created this challenge for you. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money to start with or next to nothing. You'll discover easy and fun ways to start generating passive income, multiply your money, and create a future of financial independence without the guesswork, complexity, or risk when it comes to investing. The challenge is right around the corner, so secure your spot by clicking the link in the show notes. And by the way, this challenge is totally free. So click the link in the show notes or go to erica.com slash invest. That's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest. Again, that's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest to secure your spot. Now back to the episode. So people try to lose weight or try to exercise. They'll say, I'm going to exercise three times this week. And then they miss one of the workouts and that's considered a failure. And when you put your mind in that mindset that it's a failure, the next week you're like, why am I even going to bother? We all make mistakes. And literally, how you respond during that mistake will define how you react to it in the future. Christina Curtis is a master business coach who's worked with executives from Google and writes for the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, and Forbes. She is an expert on motivation who uses psychology and neuroscience to help guide people to achieve better results. How would you define greatness? Ah, great question. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. You talk a lot about this concept of greatness. How would you define greatness? Oh, great question. Greatness to me is not just about money. I think people have this version of greatness, meaning I get a certain title or I get a certain pay grade or suddenly my bank account reflects this giant amount of money. And what I find is even when I'm working with people who have a lot of money, they're still searching for what greatness is until they find fulfillment and happiness. To me, I'm very, very focused when I'm working with my clients, whether it's an Olympic athlete or a Fortune 500 executive, not just on success from a work standpoint, but from a life standpoint, because that's what we're seeking, right? We're seeking money, sure, but why? Because we want to be happy. We want to like wake up and feel not afraid, but calm and grounded and like, heck yeah, I'm doing this and I'm enjoying it. And that's the piece of greatness. I think people forget and leave behind and then wonder why they feel like they're always missing out. 
Do you find like the leaders that you work with that we all look at externally and say, wow, they are great. Do they believe that they are great? Right. Great question. No. Uh, The reality is, as human beings, we are pre-wired to have self-doubt. And self-doubt, I think people get really anxious about it. And what it is, in essence, is like your brain security system going on to say, hey, there's risk here. That's what it's there for. It's actually super helpful. And I have yet to meet someone, unless they are a sociopath or a narcissist, who doesn't have self-doubt. Because it's literally your brain's way of saying, okay, there's risk here. Double down, be thoughtful, be measured, and engage in a really careful way. But what ends up happening is we doubt ourselves then we get nervous, then we get nervous about being nervous, and we get in our way. And we end up messing up because we create this self-fulfilling prophecy. But I have yet to engage with a leader who does not experience that. And they just don't say it publicly because it can affect stock price or it can affect all kinds of people's versions of what they see as this person is being. But yeah, self-doubt's human nature. And it's really interesting to me because what we do ultimately is just repeat previous thoughts and behaviors all the time. It's why I've been in this business 20 years and keep seeing the same patterns repeat for people because we operate on autopilot 43% of the day, 43% of the day. And when we're stressed, that actually increases. So it's like Erica from the past keeps showing up in your future and doing the same behaviors. And like, how can I get out of my own way? And that to me is the greatest obstacle for greatness. It's not out there. It's not something we need to achieve. It's actually figuring out what's going on up here. What do you mean specifically by operating on autopilot? Does that mean doing the same activities each day, like going to walk your dog, eating breakfast or? Yeah, the brain loves predictability. It loves patterns. It's built to essentially save energy. It's an economical organ. So it's like, why am I going to create new thoughts? Why am I going to create new behaviors and patterns when the old ones are working just fine? And so anytime you may want to drive change, you'll notice like you get discomfort. It's like, oh, like for me, it's salt and vinegar chips. I love salt and vinegar chips. I had them yesterday. I did too. (laughs) Oh my God, they're so good. But you walk by them like in the airport. And even though I might've made a fitness goal, it's like the bag is speaking to me and I just get pulled back. It could be 9 a.m. I'm like, well, I might as well get the chips. I'm traveling. That's my way of rationalizing it. So that's just an example of even though I have a goal, there's a pattern that's repeating behind the scenes and trying to change it creates discomfort. And what they've learned is actually the brain is operating on patterns throughout the day, all the time, just pulling previous thoughts. Like you may have the same thought now, which is by the way, terrifying if you have journals. I look back to when I was 16 and I'm like, wow, some of the same thoughts are still showing up. Are you kidding me? 30 years later, like, what am I doing? And so that's just such a great mechanism to say, oh, got it, it's going to show up. I don't have to listen to it, but the same patterns show up. So 43% of the time and upwards when we're stressed, It's like same pattern, same behavior, and we want a different result. We keep getting the same result. It's like, how do I break through that? How do I break through that? And that's what choosing greatness is all about to me. And do you think that the leaders that we look at today have lower than 43% chance of running on autopilot? Yeah, I think the leaders we look at who are at the top of their game have patterns that repeat because we can't trade up the brain for something else. It is what it is, but they don't engage with it the same way. So a great example is self-doubt. I'll feel self-doubt. Let's say I'm going up to do a big keynote and I'm standing in front of a company and there are thousands of people in the audience and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. I hope I don't screw up. And I get focused on the content, right? Like I hope I get my words right. I hope I don't, and it just starts this spiral. So instead of allowing that pattern to run, 
What I find top executives and Olympic athletes do is they interrupt the pattern. They're like, no, thank you. And they anchor on something else because you're literally unable to get rid of that voice. Literally unable. You can turn it down with practice, but it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Even for the most successful public speakers, it doesn't go away. And so instead of allowing it to run and just giving into the voice as though it's real, it's like, no thanks, no pattern today. I'm ready. And I literally will watch athletes. I actually worked with this basketball player earlier in my career. And she'd step out on the court, even after she won a gold medal, and she'd run out and she'd feel a surge of anxiety. She's like, oh my gosh, so many fans don't want to let down my team. And that's what we call an avoidant mindset. Because you're like, oh my God, get me out. Right? It's like the brain's like, get me off the court. And that's not going to go well in basketball. You can't be out on the court and be like, please don't throw the ball to me. I'm planning on failing. Like, not a good idea. So instead, you get yourself into an approach mindset. So the pattern can run, but instead of feeling that I'm out of here, you're like, no, game time, game on. And you'll watch athletes high-five each other. You'll watch them start to move their feet. They're starting to use that nervous energy to their advantage because actually it's the same thing as excitement. Below the neck, it's the exact same physiological experience. And so instead of being allowing the avoidant to run, which is what we do, we're like, okay, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to fail. And then we make it true. It's like, no, thank you. Not today. Let's go. Game on. And that, I can even just feel it saying it, that changes your entire chemical makeup. You're like, it is go time and you're primed to perform. That's interesting. So at the beginning of our conversation, my very first question that I was so excited about, I had prepped so much for you, I messed up. And I noticed when I mess up once, then I start to get in my head being like, oh, Erica, how could you mess that up? And then I mess up again. And like, I think on the fourth time I got that question, right? Yeah. So what would have been the technique for me to use there? So if you are in a situation like this where you can't speak out loud and say, you're good, let's go. Because sometimes you can't. Say it in your head. Because instead, what you're listening to is the voice saying, oh my God, maybe she's looking at me. I don't want to screw up again. These lights are hot. Whatever it is, right? Whatever's starting, your brain is focusing on all of the risks. And we're allowing it to do that. That's its job. So instead of doing that, it's like, I'm good. I know my stuff. Let's go. It's literally moving into a go time. For me, I say, and it sounds silly, but when I'm about to uh, have a keynote or whatever it is, and I feel that surge of adrenaline, which I could make mean I'm nervous. Instead, I'm like, got it, game time, let's go. And maybe because I've worked with a lot of athletes, but that to me puts me in the right mindset. And I don't sit down if I can. I'll stand up and I'll be like, let's move your body and get into that physical mindset of go time. So for you, yeah, you screw up and you did the perfect thing. You're like, ah, I screwed up. And then instead of making it a big deal, it's just like, got it. It doesn't mean anything. I think that's the biggest issue people face is when something goes wrong, we make it mean that there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. We made a mistake. We all make mistakes. And literally, how you respond during that mistake will define how you react to it in the future. So I've kind of realized this about myself that... I talk negatively to myself all the time. And I'm always like, that's not good enough. That wasn't done well. Is that actually a good thing to getting to this success and greatness? Because I think if you talk too positively to yourself, then you might kind of miss some of the opportunities. Totally true. However, however, uh, we're really hard on ourselves. So if it was a, a reassuring hard on yourself, like, oh, we messed up. Let's go at it again that'd be fine. Instead, it's like, oh, we messed up. You see, you're not good enough. 
I mean, we even make it mean that we're not likable enough. And we make it mean that we're not lovable enough. We take it to really dark places when it couldn't be farther from the truth. It was a mistake. And what we know is when you learn to run, you fell a lot. We don't look at babies and be like, ha ha, you're a failure. Like that's not a thing because they're not failing, they're learning. And the way that I look at it in terms of just greatness in life, I'm learning every day. I'm learning here with you. I'm learning later in the day when I'm off doing something else. All I'm doing is learning so I can keep getting better every single day. There's no final finish line. There's no place I need to be good enough for. I'm getting better every day. And when we frame all of the experiences we have as learning versus all or nothing versus got to crush it or I'll fail, that black and white binary thinking that we do, it's like you're always failing because you never feel good enough. There's never something that goes off uh, 100% perfectly. There just isn't. That's not a thing, right? We'll use the wrong word and then we'll worry about it later. Or we'll do the wrong thing and then we'll worry about it later. And instead, it's like taking a deep breath and saying, I'm going into this meeting so I can practice the skill and get better at it for the next one. That's a much healthier, it's called positive error framing. And it's a much healthier way to set your brain up for success because you're just growing. So it's not about good or bad or success or failure. It's just growth. And then there's always room for more. And there's no real ceiling. I actually remember when I was 22 years old and I had a number in mind. I was like, I'm going to make that number and that is greatness. And then I passed it within three years. So am I done? No, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm like, I'm just getting started. And then I thought, oh, that's the top number. There's no number bigger than that I could ever earn. A couple of years later, you pass that. It's like, hold on. Maybe this isn't about a number. Maybe this isn't about a job title. Maybe this isn't about everyone watching me to see if I'm good enough. It's just about growth. And to me, that changed my whole life. And there's always more upside because of it. I did the same thing. I always have a number in mind. And then once I get to it, I move it to the next number. <laughs> but I think that's good. I don't think it's a it's problem, It's good unless right? you make it wrong. Let's say you have a big goal. You want to make a million bucks in a year. And uh, you're not going to make it for five years. That's the reality. It's going to take you five years to build up your business in order to get there. So are you failing for those five years? Do you finish the year and get your uh, earnings and feel like a failure at the end of the day? That's what a lot of people do. And then they beat themselves up. And that's the hard on yourself environment that I'm talking about that's not healthy. However, if you keep challenging yourself from a positive standpoint and say, oh yeah, we can go for it. Like for me, I'm like, oh yeah, we can go for that number. Let's do it. And it's fun and it's playful and it's motivating. There's nothing wrong with it. It's when you feel like you're constantly failing. I think about that in terms of habits like uh, weight loss. So people try to lose weight or try to exercise. And they'll say, I'm going to exercise three times this week. And then they miss one of the workouts. Or they don't work out as long as they'd wanted to. And that's considered a failure. And when you put your mind in that, in that mindset that it's a failure, the next week you're like, why am I even going to bother? And then people fall off. But what we need to know is when you try to drive change, when you commit to driving change, there are always setbacks and they don't mean anything. Why do we make them mean anything? It's like, oh, I missed a workout. Let's go back. In fact, let's go now. Why would I bother waiting? Let's just get it done. But we're so hot on ourselves that it actually sets us backwards rather than propelling us forward. And that is not a healthy way to live. Um, just from, again, if we think about greatness being uh, success in all areas of our life, my guess is it erodes happiness. 
There's something to that where if you break a habit once, you kind of get defeated. Like I think about my TikTok. For the first 30 to 60 days, I had one TikTok released every single day. But then once I missed one day, that one missed day turned into two days and then three days. And then same for this podcast. I've always said, okay, I'm going to do one per week forever. And I know once I miss one week, it's going to turn into two weeks and three weeks. And I'm going to be like, oh, I'm tired. (laughs) Yeah, right. Instead of engaging with it to say, my goal is to do, you're doing one a day. Great. And if you miss it, don't make it mean anything. That's the problem that I think that happens. But it's hard to get back up on. Yes, it is. So the reality is because habits are entrenched, they don't go away. So even though I'm almost 50, I'm 46 years old, I have some of the same habits I had around self-doubt as an example as when I was a kid. And they'll still show up because they are literally worn into my brain like these deep grooves. And I think we assume that if we work on them, they go away. They don't go away. You still feel that pull. You still that feel that pull to be hard on yourself. You still feel the pull to, gosh, to not work out and to sit on the couch and eat your chips, whatever it is but you don't have to listen to it. And, and that's the greatest thing that I see in terms of people who actually break through habitual patterns. It's that they're able to tolerate discomfort. So discomfort is what happens when you try to change. I'm going to try to change something. I'm breaking a habit. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to make more money. And then I feel discomfort. And so I move into an avoidant mindset. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to bother. I give up quickly. I rationalize why I'm not going to do it. Instead of, great, discomfort's part of the whole game. None of this is easy. Like being fit is not easy. It's really hard. I'm doing it right now and it's like grueling and I'm on day eight of these intense workouts. Oh my God, this is not easy. But being unfit was not easy. Uh, Being financially successful is not easy. And feeling like you're always in debt is not easy. So choose what kind of hard you want and go for it recognizing that discomfort either way is just part of the human experience. Those self-doubts that you were talking about, are you just suppressing those constantly? And there's no way to eliminate that? Yeah, I don't suppress them. I am friends with them. I'm friends with them, so they'll show up and I show love. So today I will get to the elevator and I'm coming out into your studio here to have a conversation And you'll have a flash of, oh my gosh, I hope I say something intelligent or whatever. It's usually not that nice, by the way. It's like, I hope I'm good enough. And then you think to yourself, should I listen to that? Probably not. I know I'm good enough. I know I can do this. And I might make a mistake. I'm sure I'm going to make lots of mistakes. I'm ready. So it's just a different level of engagement. And what they look at from an Olympic athlete standpoint, sometimes it's easier in sports, is in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, they looked at people who won medals and people who did not win medals. And the most common denominator of the people who won medals was the talk they've got going on internally and how they are moving their way through setbacks, how they're positioning themselves to learn and grow before they start the game. So it is very, very important that you allow those negative thoughts just like clouds, like, hi, thanks for coming. It's probably my six-year-old self who uh, was embarrassed because someone wouldn't play with me or my 14-year-old self who was at school and I didn't feel pretty, showing up. But that's not 46-year-old Christina. And I got to just say, hi, I love you. Right now is not the time. 
I hope you're loving this conversation, but I wanted to jump in to talk to you about something I think you need to know about. If you know me, you know I'm all about efficiency, tricks and tips that make everyday business tasks a breeze. Today's secret weapon turns your big ideas into a stunning online presence. If you need to build a website and you want something uniquely yours, Hostinger has got you covered. Thanks to their AI website builder, you can take your business or personal profile online without the hassle. Simply explain what you want in a few sentences and you'll have your very own website. What I love most is that Hostinger doesn't limit you with cookie cutter templates. You can choose your style, but get all the help you need with fonts, images, and layouts based on your keywords, which makes the site feel truly like yours. When I used it, the cherry on top was that thanks to AI, I even got SEO-friendly copy and an AI heat map that helps to improve user experience and conversions by showing you which areas of your website attract attention. Everything you need is included and accessible. Header, footer, contact form, images, social icons, and even a logo if you don't have one, courtesy of their AI logo maker. Not only that, but they also have e-commerce options with a 0% transaction fee and a dedicated live support team who are just a message away when you need them. If you're ready to bring your vision to life without the fuss, check out Hostinger. Right now, they're having their New Year's sale until February 12th. You can get full website building capabilities for just $2.49. Even better, head to hostinger.com slash Erica10 and get an extra 10% off the sale price at checkout with code Erica10. That's hostinger.com slash Erica10. Remember, Erica is with a K, so it's E-R-I-K-A 10. I'll put the link in the show notes. Do you believe in what they say about mantras like repeating, I am great or I am pretty? <laughs> uh, I don't do that myself. And there's science behind what's called neural priming. And so neural priming is getting yourself in a situation where you are thinking about something. So let me give you an example, um, and it drives behavior. There is a fascinating study where they looked at MBA students, and they put them into two groups. And they said to the first group, hey, this is going to be the most stressful, horrible time of your life. And then they went to the second group and said, it's going to be a great year, let's go. So both students, both groups of students leave, take their first year of their MBA and get surveyed afterwards on how they felt about their first year. The people who were primed to think that it would be the most stressful year of their lives felt like it was the most stressful year of their lives. That's priming. They were primed to believe something. Those who were told it's going to be a great year thought it was hard and stressful and a great year. And so neural priming and how we set ourselves up is really important. So how you prime yourself to think about things is actually highly important. And it does tie back into the being hard on yourself again, because am I priming myself to think I'm going to fail by just focusing on the risks? Or am I priming myself to think about all the ways it could turn out well and all the things that I already know I'm bringing to the table and all the experiences I can layer in? Even if you're at the beginning of your career, you have 18 to 20 years of experience under your belt of going through hard things. I mean, life is not easy, right? Life is not simple. You don't just wake up and go through the day and win. And I think about that a lot. I have two teenage kids and uh, they're both in high school. And I'll watch them go through these experiences where they come home and they don't feel good enough. 
And I think to myself, how can I work with them now so that that doesn't echo throughout their life? And the answer is, it's going to echo anyway. It's how they engage with it that will be different. It's really interesting. When we go through adolescent years, the brain goes through anatomical shifts where it becomes very focused on us and others. It's like, who am I in relation to all the other people out there? And then we start comparing ourselves to others. Uh, They look like that. How do I look? They have bigger boobs than I do. How are my boobs, right? I remember thinking that. I was like, oh, they got them earlier than I did. That's a real female thought of body comparison. Um, They have more friends than I do. And I get emotional talking about it because I understand why the brain does that in order to be more self-aware. For instance, in your youth, you may have done magic shows or been singing in front of your family and you don't want to bust that out in a high school chemistry class. I get that. And we just keep validating whatever perspective we form. And so for me, I made up in high school that I wasn't popular. That was what I kept saying. I'm watching my kids do this. I'm not popular enough. And yet, literally in my ninth grade class, the most popular kid committed suicide. And so what does popular even mean? Now, fast forward a decade, two decades, three decades, and I'll look around an office and I'll be like, gosh, do I have enough of a network? Am I likable enough? You hear the same voice. I'm just not listening to it anymore. I'm like, you're good. I reassure myself. So I'm not someone who sits there and says, I'm great, I'm pretty. I'm not even sure that's in my lexicon of words. But I do say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Even when I know I'm not ready, I will find people who can help me get through it. And even when I know it's a bigger task than I can take on, I will figure it out. That's what I have faith in. At what age is that that your brain starts to train you to make comparisons around the people? Yeah, early in your teenage years, adolescent years. So uh, it happens for different people because people develop at different times. But it is one of the leading causes of dissatisfaction in adults from a work setting is, gosh, I, why are my peers farther ahead than I am? Uh, why am I not making as much as I thought I would? Why does Joe have a bigger house than me? Why does so-and-so have that Porsche and I'm driving my whatever. It's just a real, the social comparison thing, it's very toxic and it's very real. And I think the most important thing is we don't make that wrong either because it's a natural neural response that started in adolescent years and maybe more active for some than others. And we all have it. It's also people who usually are in our social network. Like I don't get jealous of Beyonce, but I may feel jealousy towards someone who's doing what I'm doing and perceiving them as crushing it. So that's just an interesting thing. We tend to compare in our own social networks. It's interesting. One exercise that I did a couple of years back is I used to follow all of these fitness accounts thinking it would inspire me to get more fit. But what it actually did was it made me feel bad about my body and how I didn't look like them. So I just unfollowed everyone. (laughs) Yeah. But I think people should have an audit of who are you seeing and are they making you feel bad by the way that they display their life? It's interesting you say that because the title of my book is Choosing Greatness. There are active choices we have to make each day that we may or may not make that are the determinant of whether we're happy or not. For instance, for you, it was following people who are making you unhappy. You chose, instead of like tolerating that experience, you chose to stop, which may have been uncomfortable because then maybe you even made that mean, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be there. I'm going to fo- unfollow these people. Instead of like, gosh, this isn't making me feel good. So I'm going to choose something else. But the concept of choice is really powerful for me because 
you can feel discomfort and look at your goal and then choose whatever response is most important rather than just reacting all the time. I think about that a lot in terms of connections. Uh, we work a lot as a culture in, in North America, we work a lot. And what's happening is it's actually eroding our personal connections. But to be successful in life from a happiness and a work standpoint, you need a network. There is no millionaire that I work with or billionaire that I work with who has built her empire alone. You need people around you. And here's why. It's actually really interesting. When you have someone in an fMRI machine and you're watching their neural activity and they're talking about someone they like, someone they have a positive relationship with, 14 parts of their brain activate. So they're dialed in. They're like, yes, I'm all in. I love this. Whatever this person needs. Now, let's say that same person talks about someone with whom they don't have a good connection. Six parts of their brain activate and 11 deactivate. And the six parts of the brain that activate are self-protective. They're like, gosh, do I trust them? Do I not? Should I say something? Should I not? Should I help? Should I not? So now imagine building your network and your army of people who have 14 parts of their brain activated, who are dialed up and linking arms with you, ready to go after whatever you want to achieve in life. That is a complete game changer. That is literally taking you from zero to 100 because you now have however many people rowing in your boat versus you just paddling really hard alone and feeling tired. So connections are critical. And yet oftentimes we forget to build them with our family or with others because we're so darn busy doing the work. That's a big miss. There's this interesting graph that this made me think of where it's about who Americans spend their time with by age. And obviously from zero to 18, you're spending the most time with your family, but then that decreases and it continues to decrease over the course of your life. But then right around this age 20, the time you spend with coworkers really increases and you spend a lot of time with coworkers. And I was thinking you have to be so selective about who you're spending your time with, especially as over the course of your life, it changes between family and your friends and your coworkers, your partner and alone, right? Yeah. And you have to be really selective on people that give you energy versus drain it. There's interesting research on uh, this concept of energy and how it spreads. And they actually looked at a population and could identify over a 20-year period clusters of negative people versus clusters of positive people because energy is so contagious. And you could have two people, you and I could sit without saying a word in a room for 10 minutes, and whoever is the dominant energy or mood will just transfer to the other person. So it's so contagious. So now imagine you start your day and suddenly you're around people who are gossiping, who are complaining, who are bringing negativity into your space, you're going to feel depleted. And then suddenly you're going to be going out there with negative energy and seeing other people be negative to you and be like, gosh, why is everyone so negative? And yet it's your energy that you caught from someone else that you're giving to others. It's just like it's contagious. So I'm very conscious of going through with my clients, who is your inner circle? Who are the people that are bringing you energy that are filling your cup? because you can't, as they say, pour from an empty cup. So if you're feeling drained uh, by the end of the day, in the middle of the day, at the beginning of the day, how effective are you actually going to be? It's tough though when you're at a workplace and yep. it's your boss that has negative energy or it's your coworkers. Yeah. It's harder to avoid, but at a certain point, you may have to make the decision that if they have this negative energy, maybe it's time for me to switch jobs. Completely. Yeah, and, and that happens often, actually, because not everybody's a good fit for you in terms of what full greatness looks like from a happiness and a success standpoint at work. 
And if you're leaving work every day feeling drained and down, guess what? That has an impact on whoever you're going home to. And it definitely has an impact on your health. There's all kinds of research around the impacts of stress and negativity on your own health. So I think to myself, is this what I actually want for my life? And if it's not, again, it's hard to change, but it's hard being where you're at. Which one do you want to choose? You mentioned that when you work with your, the leaders and athletes that you work with, you go through these exercises. One is taking an audit of who they're spending their time with. What other things do you go through with them? I'm a big proponent of finding the right tools that just get us to think differently about things. So one of them is auditing who's in your inner circle, who you're spending time with. Another one is auditing what you want and why. I find it's really interesting when you dig into what people want. Sometimes it's from other people's wants and needs. Maybe it's a a parental uh, idea of what success looks like. Maybe it's friend influence because you're jealous of what your friends have in your particular social cohort. But when you really want something and you get very crystal clear on what that is, suddenly the path to getting there becomes that much more fun because you know you want it. You don't feel resentful. I remember early in my career, I started in sales and I was in Niagara Falls and I was running a workshop uh, for business owners. And there were, I don't know, 200 people in the room. And I had a little boy at home who was not well. And I got a call from a hospital in the middle of this workshop. And they said, hey, Christina, we need you to come in. We've got some bad news for you. And what they shared was that my son had a rare neurological disorder that affects one in a million kids. And I had this moment where I'm looking around the room and I realized I could not be there. This is not where I was supposed to be. And I got really clear that whatever that path was, it just closed. So I went into my car after quitting my job on the spot, (laughs) giving him my laptop and driving home. And I called my husband and I said, by the way, I just quit my job. And he said, could you please call me next time you go through something (laughs) like that? I'm like, I just got to get home and we got to figure this out. And I got home and I opened the door and this beautiful little two-year-old wrapped his arms around my neck. And I realized that was my job. And that was it for a year. And I just stayed with him and got him on the right trajectory. But I'm a strong proponent that uh, success looks different at different parts in your life too. As a working mom and an entrepreneur, I'm really committed to knowing what's important to me at any time. And for some executives, that even looks like going part-time so that they can be elsewhere in their life. Maybe they have kids who need their attention. Maybe they have parents who need their help. Uh, So success changes over the course of your life rather than just, if you're holding on to one goal, get really clear on why you're holding on to that goal and make sure it's the right one. You're not just stuck to it because you think you should. It's interesting when we think about success at different parts of our life, because for me, uh, I'll be honest, I always thought it was related to money. I did. I was, I was really committed to hitting a certain number and having a certain title and running my own company. And I got clear through my son's illness that that's only part of the puzzle. I actually want to be happy. I want to wake up every day and smile. Uh, I want to walk through the day and smile without even realizing why I am doing that. And so I got very clear on what success looked like for me, what greatness included and it included physical health. I want to be healthy. When my son got sick, it impacted my health significantly. And so that became a choice I was no longer willing to make. Uh, I got really clear that there was a financial goal. 
because I want to live the life that I want to be living. I want to travel and I want to stay in expensive hotels and I want to enjoy my car, whatever it is, those things bring me happiness. So I got clear on how big the business was going to be and that continues to evolve. And then I got clear that this is my life, my one life. To me, that was the biggest motivator out of all of it. I'm not afraid. I'm more afraid if I go through the day and I don't play all out than I am if I go through the day and play all out and fail. Failure is just part of the process. I got really clear that this was my one life uh, after our son got sick and he was in and out of the hospital and he was about eight years old. And we were just tired of hospitals. We were tired of needles. We were tired of tests. We were tired of no answers. And so we went up into the mountains with our kids and it was raining outside in October So you can imagine like not great outside. We're sitting by the fire playing Monopoly, happy. And he's like, mom, can we go for a walk? I'm like, why do you want to go for a walk? But I was living my all-in life. So I'm like, yeah, let's go for a walk. Great idea. So we go outside and it's teeming rain. And about 500 feet from our house, I look at him saying like, let's go back inside. And he was smiling at me. He had the biggest grin and he was taking his shirt off and the rain was just pelting down on his chest. And I was like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? And he said, mom, what if I never got to do this again? And for me, I really got that it is such a gift every single day that I can be here with you, that I can show up with my family, that I have the privilege of being able to hang out with cool people at work who I'm just so grateful to support. And my husband actually saw him taking his shirt off and ran down as well. And he took his shirt off and the (laughs) two of them just danced in the rain. And I'm like, got it. This is my life. I'm not going to miss another day of it. And I am not going to choose anything other than happiness and greatness, what that looks like for me. I will say as a female, oftentimes when we think about, yeah, this is my life, there's a sense of guilt almost in like, it's selfish to want what I want. I just, I, especially for people out there who have been raised in this uh, gender dynamic of male and female. I remember starting my career and thinking, oh yeah, my husband's going to make more than me. That's normal. That's what he should do. And I had to reprogram myself to understand that, oh my gosh, I'm capable of achieving whatever I want to achieve. And I actually believe that wholeheartedly. If I wanted to be a doctor today, great. I'm going to figure out how to go back to school and make it happen. If I want to be a firefighter, great. I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. I just don't want to limit myself with beliefs that were ingrained in me from society and or my fabulous parents, who I do love and adore, who unintentionally had their own beliefs that then came to me. I just refuse. I refuse. I want to figure out what I want. So when you talk about tools, it's like, what do I want and what beliefs are getting in my way and holding me back because I believe them to be true, even though someone else might not fascinating. If you have a business that you're trying to grow, it can be really easy to fall into the trap of trying anything and everything to achieve success. This is what's known as shiny object syndrome. Something I've learned along my business journey is the importance of focus in order to help your business thrive. Don't get caught up in repetitive tasks when you should be focused on the bigger picture. If you're trying to grow your business and love efficiency, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 
37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. There's tremendous power in having all the information in one place. If you're obsessed with efficiency like I am, then right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com Erica. That's netsuite.com Erica to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com Erica. I'll put the link in the show notes and now back to the episode. If you're listening, let me guess, you have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Can anyone achieve this level of clarity you have, or do you think it's unique to the experiences that you've had, the fact that you spend your life researching these things? With 20 years of experience in this industry, 100%, anyone can achieve this level of clarity. It helps to have a thought partner, someone you trust who you can speak to about what you want and start working through it rather than just trusting your own mind uh, or a journal. If you can trust a journal just to start writing about what you want rather than what you don't want. And while I've had life-changing experiences, the more I share, the more I realize we've all had life experiences of our own kind. It's interesting. My daughter, who's younger, uh, was talking about hardships in her life. And I'm like, hardships? (laughs) What do you mean? hardships. But when you hear her talk about it from her perspective, I'm like, of course, we all do. We all have the moment where we didn't feel pretty, the moment where we didn't feel smart enough, the moment where we felt afraid. All of us have experiences 
where we go through that, the moment our heart got broken for the first time, oh, and it's not just the pain, but it's the rejection. Social rejection is one of the most powerful mechanisms that get in our way. Because when you feel social rejection, when I don't feel loved or liked, whether it's even with my husband today, who I've been married to for 20 odd years, and he makes one comment, it can actually activate the same part of the brain responsible for physical pain. So if I feel rejected, it hurts. If I get feedback at work, it hurts. It literally activates the same parts of the brain for physical pain. And so stubbing my toe and getting feedback could be the same experience. Flopping in a meeting and breaking my arm, depending on how badly you flop, could be the same physiological experience for you. And so when I think about that, what your brain is then going to do is avoid the opportunity to take a risk next time because it hurt. Am I going to put myself back out there? I don't know. That hurt. The only thing I can share with people and what I often say to my clients is it hurts anyway because you feel like you're missing out. It hurts anyway because you don't feel like you're achieving the level of success you want. So if discomfort is just part of the human experience, let's stop making it so significant and just lean in. I think about that a lot now that I'm getting in shape again, because I'll go work out and I'll be running on a treadmill and I'll get to like minute three and feel discomfort. I'm like, I'm done. It's good. And my legs hurt and my lungs are burning and I'm sitting there sprinting, wondering why the heck I'm doing it. And sometimes I'll even rationalize getting out of it. If I'm in like a group exercise class, I'll say, gosh, this person's music sucks. This is why. This is why I'm not going to work out as hard. (laughs) There's some internal rationalization as I get uncomfortable, but I don't. I lean into discomfort. I can handle that discomfort because I know it's my muscles growing. So it's the same thing when you're out there putting yourself out in a relationship, having a hard conversation in conflict, uh, getting feedback at work. I'm putting myself out there because I want my brain to grow. I want my experiences to grow. It's all it is. It's growth is uncomfortable. Let's lean in. It's actually really rewarding when you look at it from that mindset. And I think it gets easier yeah. the more you are putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. Yes. Because I remember when I quit the law firm, one of my goals that I wrote down was I want to be in more uncomfortable situations. So things like public speaking, I hate it. The idea of being in front of a camera, I hate it. But I realized the more I put myself in front of these situations, it's not easy by any means. Even this podcast, I'm on my 53rd episode. It's not easy, but it gets slightly easier. Yes. Each time. Yeah, there's this powerhouse female executive I interview in the book, Kim Rivera, and she worked at HP as their chief legal officer. She's now at One Trust. And she said, Christina, I am able to tolerate discomfort and stress. I can hold on to it more than when I was younger. And I thought that was really interesting because it's true. As we get more exposure to discomfort and stress, quote unquote, we're like, oh, I'm, it's not going to break me. I'm okay. And then we don't focus on it as much. We'll focus on another part of the task. It's really interesting too around stress because we're afraid of stress. We're afraid of it. We've been told it's awful. We've been told it's bad for our health. And I'm not discounting any of that because it is true when it's distress. But stress is actually super healthy. Putting some level of stress on the mind gets you ready to perform. I mean, imagine going out into a tennis match and feeling no stress and like really relaxed. 
you're not going to play at your best versus, okay, this is it. I'm ready. I'm priming myself to perform. So it's called you stress. It's actually a healthy kind of stress and you need it. So when you feel stress, I want to be careful that we're not making this word mean bad things because feeling stress can be really healthy to prime us. And again, it's distress when it tips the scales and we're like, that was my max. I've now blown past that. That's when we got to back off a little and come back into our prime zone. And how can you understand whether you're experiencing distress or the good stress? Yes. And how do you feed one type versus the other is another interesting element to that. Uh, distress, we know what it feels like. It's You get drained. You can feel fatigued in the moment. You can feel panicked. Some people experience anxiety. So there's a level of anxiousness that shows up. Uh, some people experience a level of depression. So there's a depressed energy that shows up. When you move into what I call like your 10 out of 10 stress scale, if you go over 10, back up, take a break. I actually recommend to my clients that they take multiple breaks throughout the day of two to five minutes because they're all living in high stress environments constantly. You need to disengage for a few minutes to pet your dog, to go outside for a walk, to take a deep breath and do nothing other than breathe. Not turn on your email, but breathe. And it allows you to come back down to an eight out of 10. Then you have two more points where you can have some wiggle room if someone drops something on your desk. So being really thoughtful about how to manage your stress levels throughout the day consciously and choosing choosing how you engage with it uh, has been game-changing for me. Someone opened my eyes to this recently. They were saying I was having trouble going to sleep and they were saying that I should disengage from work three hours before sleep. And the days that I've done that in the past week, I've been able to sleep well. And then last night, right before bed, I sent a stressful message out. And so I didn't sleep as well. I woke up after a couple of hours. I was checking my text to see if the person responded. Like, it, it really does have an impact on almost everything that you do when you have that negative stress. Yeah, and it is, you're priming yourself for something stressful at 9.30 at night when you can't do anything about it. So then the brain is left with this, this loose thread that just keeps wagging and floating around all night and you keep thinking about it because it's open. It's like un, not dealt with. You can't even move into action because you're going to bed. So being really conscious about when you stop working is important. Sleep is actually, from my perspective, the primary, uh, and I know you've had Ariana on here as well, Huffington. It's the primary driver for happiness in life. If I'm tired everything else is out the window. And as a working mom, I can get tired pretty easily because you finish work, you come home, there's kid demand, there's activity demand, I'm chauffeuring people, whatever's going on. Uh, it's really important I choose time for myself. And I will say that truthfully, up until about five years ago, I felt like I was selfish when I took time for myself. I did, I'd think, oh, my kids need me right now. I can't go off and go to the gym or my kids dream me right now or work needs me. I can't go do this thing. And then finally, my husband sat me down. And he's like, so here's the thing. When you are distressed because you have too much on your plate and you don't manage your stress level, even though you're here with us, it's not really pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could just go manage your stress, that would be helpful for all of us. And then come back when you're ready. <laughs> It's great. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to go to the gym. <laughs> That's so funny. That's a good reality check. <laughs> it was a great reality check. And I remember growing up in a house where 
we could feel when stress showed up because someone would slam a cupboard or we weren't yellers, but you could feel tension. So as a kid, I remembered that sense. And so then I'm like, oh my God, I'm showing up with the tension. I think it's good to know too who you are when you're distressed, how you show up because you're going to hit more conflict. And if you choose to lean into a hard conversation when you're a 10 out of 10 on the stress scale, you have no wiggle room to absorb self-awareness, to absorb energy coming at you. You're not in a good space. So being really thoughtful of choosing when to have hard conversations and what to do when you're distressed, back up. That actually is a time to disconnect. In your book, Choosing Greatness, you talk in chapter one about getting carjacked with your kids in the car. Yeah, it was uh, a terrifying, uh, terrifying experience. We were in the car. I had both kids in the car and I was dropping uh, them off at school. So it was the middle of the day. And a gentleman opened the passenger door while we were stopped at a light with this 12-inch knife and jumped in the car and closed the door behind him. Uh, and we were just trapped in this vehicle together. And he wanted me to drive. And so he and I actually went through eight minutes of wrestling with this knife because he was coming at me. And I don't think he realized the kids were there because they were really quiet, needless to say, in a state of shock. Um, And I went into what normally happens is a reactive panicked mode. So I just started screaming. And I started pushing on him and screaming and I hit the gas pedal to try to hit a pole because I thought if I get into a car accident, people will come and save us. And then he grabbed the wheel and swerved it and we were back in the road. And I was like, okay, I'm going to swerve in oncoming traffic in my head. If I get into an accident, people will save us. So I swerve over this median and he pulls the wheel back and we're back in this traffic um, going the right way. And then my little kid in the back seat says to me really quietly, it was, it was like all the screaming chaos and this tiny little voice. And he said, mom, what do you want me to do? And it totally interrupted my pattern of panic. And I realized no one's coming and that I'm the one that has to figure this out. So I took a lot of deep breaths and I got really clear that reacting versus responding thoughtfully, uh, I needed to choose responding. I needed to be thinking because when you're reacting and panicked, you don't think, you just do. And there's a time for that. But now is actually not the time. So I took some deep breaths and I looked at this man and I said, my kids are in the car. You can take me wherever you want to go. I'm going to get them out of the vehicle. We're going to pull over at the library. And what I realized is we're in a two-door vehicle. So one of us would have to get out for them to get out, which was just not going to happen. So he said, no. And then I just started running through possible scenarios in my head of how to get through this experience. And what was so cool is I was really clear-headed and really calm. And I realized after about eight minutes that uh, he was going to take us to a dark street, a quiet street where it was just our family. And I was not willing to make that um, decision. So I was going to fight him. And I actually said to him, hey, could you get my phone out of my purse Uh, and put on YouTube. And let's watch SpongeBob SquarePants for the kids. Let's throw on a show. And I was talking to my kids like we were just sitting there having our morning cereal. Hey guys, what do you want to watch? Kung Fu Panda. No, we just watched that one, mom. Okay, what else should we go through? And I think because I was so calm, he got thrown off. And his energy, which had been where my energy was, slowly started to come down. And in my mind anyway, he got the extent of what he was doing. 
that there are kids in the vehicle, that it's not just a single female, that this is probably not a great scenario for him. And he said, pull the hell over. We pulled over and he took off. And they never caught him. Uh, But I got clear on the difference between panicked reaction and thoughtfully choosing how to respond. And from my perspective, just that little whisper in the back seat uh, saved our life. Oh my gosh. It's an intense day. It was an intense day. How long ago was this? Four years ago. So they were pretty young. Yeah. And we got clear that he was not in it for the car. He wanted me. He didn't take my Rolex. He didn't take my purse. He didn't take my credit cards. He didn't take anything. He was, he had his target. And, um, but yeah, this little whisper, it's so funny what, what jolts us out of a panicked state. And this little whisper from the backseat, mom, what should we do? I was like, oh my God, nobody's going to save us. I actually have to figure this one out. So it was a life-changing experience for me. It was actually the catalyst uh, in many ways for the book because this whole concept where I'd watch my brain toggle between no clarity of thought to I was so calm. I was so calm and so grounded. I think I totally threw him off. Uh, sprinkled with a heck of a lot of luck. I don't know how we got out of that situation. I take zero credit. Um, we got lucky. I got lucky the kids were in the car, even though that's the worst possible thing, just because I don't think I would be here uh, today if they weren't. And this whole time you were still just driving with him and having this conversation. Yeah, and we slowed down the car to match our energy. I was going about 10 10 miles an hour. I was going very slowly on a very busy street. Uh, I just needed everything to settle down. I had to think. How have you applied that in your life since the to not necessarily react? Yeah, there's some internal system that I've become aware of for me where it's like the revving and then it just keeps revving. So stress is a great example of that. I'll get focused on something and then I'll get anxious about it and I can feel the revving increase. And now I know, oh, I can control the revving. It's the craziest thing. I've had anxiety that pops up at different times in my life situationally, my whole, since I can remember, since I was a kid. I'm like, I can actually choose to shift some of that. Not all of it, but I can choose to shift some of that so I can think again. Because I notice when I'm really anxious, I don't think clearly. I usually don't even make great choices. And it doesn't feel good. I panic a bit. So now uh, I actually get very clear on, I need some deep breaths. I need to slow down. And if I'm in a hard conversation with uh, someone who matters to me and there's a lot of conflict, I'll focus on what I actually want, which is connection with the person. I think about that all the time with my husband. If we have something that's hard to talk about, and I can feel my energy going, and I can feel my emotions starting to take over, and it clouds your thinking, and literally clouds your thinking. You do not think clearly. You get into a self-protective state versus a goal-directed state. I will breathe my way through it, and I'll go in my head, okay, why am I here? I'm here because I want our marriage to be stronger. And I'll even say it, hey, I'm here because I want us to talk about this so we can be even stronger, so we can be an even better team. Here's the challenge. So that whole concept of revving versus relaxing, I've been playing with that a lot since that event. And I was also thinking the, the reminder that your son gave you to knock you out of that panic state. It's very not similar, but when my husband and I were fighting, I realized one of the best things we can do is just be near each other and actually touch skins. Because something about that physical contact when you are fighting 
reminds you that we're on the same team. Yeah. Versus like if we have, if we're talking like this and having a tense argument, you feel separated. Totally. And you don't feel that connection. Yeah, we just want to belong. We just want to be part of something. We want to be loved. And when you're in conflict with someone, let's just use a work example because that's less love and more I want to be respected and valued. If you're in a work scenario and there's distance between you and you're sitting on the other side of the table, you are positioning your brain to walk in with an us and them for mentality. It's me and it's you and there's one version of right and it's probably mine. I very rarely have people when I'm doing conflict negotiations say, I am wrong, heads up, it's me. I screwed up, everything is my fault. That doesn't happen. We're not prime. It's cognitive dissonance. It's this matter of, I need to be right. And what I often tell people is you have to put your banana down. So here's a silly little anecdote I use. No animals were hurt in the making of this fable, but they used to, in this fable, put this cage of bananas out in the wild to catch monkeys in order to bring them to the zoo. So you get this cage of bananas. Again, this is not true. It's just a good way to look at it. Cage of bananas, monkeys would run up. They'd put their arms through these tightly held bars and they'd grab banana and they can't get the banana out. Meanwhile, a trapper's coming behind them and they're so focused on the banana that they don't even notice, they get caught. And human beings are like that with being right. We hold on so tightly to being right, we don't even notice we're damaging our relationship. We don't even notice that we may have left logic in the wind at this point and we're just running on emotion. We don't notice anything else going on other than the fact that we want to be right. And so whenever you're in conflict with someone, it's really helpful to put your banana down and say, here's what I own. I just want to put this out there. Here's what I own in this dynamic and not here's what I own because you did this. It's like, here's what I own. And my goal is so that we can figure this out together. And my Truthfully, 90% of the time, my observation is the other person says, yeah, this is what I own. Because your defenses are down and you're back to a we. What do you think we should be doing to break our patterns that are holding us back? Great question. Yeah, the first one is know what they are. I often find it really interesting as I read back through journals over the years because I can then see the patterns, but that's just a gift of whether I wrote about it or not at the time. Figuring out what they are. And I actually recommend writing them down so that you're not only saying them and then maybe forgetting about them later, it's like putting a giant highlighter around it. So your brain will then say, okay, got it. It's showing up again, It's showing up again. Pleasing people is a great example. People love to please other people, even to their own detriment. And if you put that down and say, be aware of when you're trying to please people, suddenly, just by having it out there on a post-it note on my computer, I noticed I do this all the time. It had ripple effects I wasn't even aware of. And it's okay to want to make people happy. However, just automatically, from a pattern perspective, pleasing people around you, maybe not saying what needs to be said, maybe not doing what needs to be done, maybe not uh, putting yourself in a position where you can win because you're just pleasing other people and want to be liked. It was really interesting for me. So being really aware of it and writing it down. There's actually really interesting research around that because three out of the four people who go through a heart event, cardiac event, like a heart attack, don't actually take doctor's orders around exercise and nutrition and stress management, maybe because they haven't identified what those patterns are. So we just go back to the way it was. I do this all the time. I do this all the time. Let's say I'm, uh, my goal is, again, to get fit. I may easily fall back into this pattern of not really working out in my day. And then I'll rationalize it. I didn't have time today. I don't, I can't prioritize myself. There's too many other things going on. That's not choosing it. The book is not called choosing more of the same, right? It's called choosing 
greatness. And so being aware of what the patterns are that you want to break in your marriage, in your relationships, in your personal life, or at work is super important so that your brain starts to watch for the ripple effects when they show up. Because a pattern happens unconsciously. We don't even know sometimes when it's playing out. So that's step one. Step two is figuring out what the new pattern will be. If I'm going to pull this pattern out, that's one thing. I have to fill it with something. I got to choose something else. So what would the ideal behavior look like in those situations? What would the ideal experience look like for you? And getting clear on how you're going to literally pull one piece out of a sequence of events and put a new one in uh, is really powerful because then you're priming your brain to look for those moments of when, oh yeah, this is when I'm supposed to pull that out and put that in. And then you start getting some wins and progress and reinforcement and the brain's like, all right, let's do that one again. That felt good. So for the people pleasing, what would be the habit that you would replace it with? Yeah, I have, a, I have my own around that. I think everybody's version of people pleasing looks different. For me, it's say what needs to be said. We get so afraid of conflict. We avoid conflict. We think it means, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be liked. I don't want to push on this thing. I don't want to rock the boat. Instead of, actually, conflict is super healthy. You ever notice the people you have the strongest relationship with, you've gone through conflict with? Because conflict is the gateway to connection. It's like, oh, we can disagree and still be friends. Oh, we can disagree and still date each other. We can disagree and still work together. High performance teams, high conflict environments because they're constantly challenging that the best idea get put forward, that the best next step get put forward. So changing the way we actually look at pleasing people, instead of that, just say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done from a place of compassion. It's very powerful. It's not us and them. It's not, I need to be right. Take all the heat out. It's like, it's not about emotion. It's just fact-based. I actually would recommend this. Here's something we might not have considered. Here's another recommendation we could look at. Here's something else I'd recommend we do. And it was like, oh, I can say what I'm thinking. I just have to say it without all the heat. Instead, we come in so hot, the other person's like, whoa, now I need to be right because this person's attacking me. It's like coming at someone like a train. You put them into a defensive mode right off the bat. And then we wonder why the conversation didn't go well. And step three is no, you're going to screw it up. If you look at the change management process, the last step is relapse because we do relapse into our old patterns. It's going to happen. We don't need to beat ourselves up about it. Just go back to choosing again. Oh, yeah, I slipped up. Oh, yeah, I said the wrong thing. Let me own it and move on. I call them my cleanup conversations. If I miss a workout and I wanted to work out that day and I rationalized it away, I'll just clean it up. Christina, you missed it today. Want to go now or tomorrow? Tomorrow, great. That's my internal talk. <laughs> if I'm with my husband, I'll say, gosh, I actually was supposed to do this and I didn't. Let me clean it up. That's on me. Moving on. I don't need to make myself wrong. The brain is so binary, right? Black and white, right or wrong, good or bad. It's like there's all kinds of options in between. We just have to choose something else and another way to engage with it. This has been beautiful. We have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Christina Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Christina taught me this? I would love for people to walk away from today and realize that Christina taught them this is their one life. This is their one shot and that they are worth the time and investment to lean in and do whatever they choose so they can achieve their version of greatness. That would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.